It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. The following is a special presentation of AM 1100 KFAX. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin from ABC Radio. Here is a special bulletin from Dallas, Texas. Three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas. Here is a flash from Dallas. A bulletin from CBS News. President Kennedy has been shot by a would-be assassin in Dallas, Texas. It has been called the shot that was heard around the world. On November 22nd of 1963, the nation experienced one of the most traumatic events in modern American history, the assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. From day one, the truth behind JFK's assassination has been mired in controversy. The Warren Commission, established after Kennedy's death, delved into the who, what, when, and where of the tragedy, and over the course of the following year, compiled an exhaustive report almost 1,000 pages in length that arrived at the now almost universally contested conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin. Who really killed Kennedy? Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Jerome Corsi, who provides us some insights in a new book that he's penned by that title, Who Really Killed Kennedy? Fifty Years Later, Stunning New Revelations About the JFK Assassination. And Dr. Corsi, delight to have you on the program today. Uh, great, great to be with you, Craig. Thank you very much. Let's first, uh, for historical foundation here, walk listeners through some of the events of that historic day on the Friday afternoon of November the 22nd of 1963. First, President Kennedy was in the state of Texas. Um, what was he doing there? Well, it was a a political trip uh, in preparation for the 1964 elections, which were coming up. And um, there there was controversy in the state between uh, Vice President Lyndon Johnson, who was a Texan, and other more liberal uh, elements of the Texas uh, Democratic Party. And John Kennedy wanted to smooth things over, and he also wanted to fundraise in this trip uh, to get some money. And there was a possibility Johnson might be dropped from the ticket. And so Jack Kennedy wanted to see how much political clout Lyndon Johnson yet had in his home state of Texas. So a quick trip to kind of barnstorm Texas. They began the day at a Chamber of Commerce meeting in Fort Worth. That's correct. This is not an easy effort. This requires sacrifice by the people of the United States. But this is a very dangerous and uncertain world. As I said earlier, on three occasions in the last three years... The United States has had a direct confrontation. No one can say uh, when it will come again. No one expects uh, that uh, our life will be easy. Certainly not in this decade, and perhaps not in this century. Two years ago, I said that, uh, introduced myself in Paris by saying that I was the man who had accompanied uh, Mrs. Kennedy to Paris. I'm uh, getting that somewhat that same sensation uh, as I travel around uh, Texas. Nobody wonders what Lyndon and I wear. (laughs) 
the president there, Dr. Corsi, uh, displaying some some wonderful humor, of course. He was referring to uh, Jackie Kennedy, who had been kind of a fashion trendsetter as they had traveled throughout Europe uh, the summer before, but also... uh, Touching a note on some somber issues, uh, kind of a thinly veiled reference there, no doubt, to uh, what had been one of the most harrowing moments of his presidency, and that was coming through the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, that's right. I mean, the uh, Kennedy administration had been tested with the Bay of Pigs almost immediately after, which was an invasion of Cuba that was engineered by the CIA. It was a fiasco, and uh, Kennedy had been... uh, the CIA and the military wanted to go into Laos uh, to fight the Pathet Lao, the communist forces. Kennedy had refused to send military. There had been the Berlin Wall, which is being erected by uh, the Soviets to divide East and West Berlin. Uh, the, the first years of the Kennedy administration, first two years, were very, very difficult. And, and Kennedy, in 1963, anticipating a difficult election, did not know. This was the last formal speech he gave, the one you just played, the segment of, Kennedy wanted to prepare the audience that, you know, things could yet be rough in international uh, relations and foreign affairs, because Kennedy was not going to go along with what the CIA wanted, including in Vietnam. These issues concerning Cuba and CIA would play a pivotal role later on in research related to his assassination. But let's move for the moment from the visit that morning to the Chamber of Commerce at Fort Worth to the president's arrival at Love Field in Dallas. It looks like a police convention. We have never seen as many Dallas police officers in one location. The security precautions at this luncheon they're going to attend range from the distance from the president's car door to the trademark entrance and to how many doors and windows are in the building, and even the method of selecting the state the president will eat. And here is the presidential jet, U.S. Air Force number one, printed on the side, and the crowd begins its cheer, which you can't hear over the whistle and hum of the jets, but handkerchiefs are being waved, the placards are being held high, and hundreds of tiny American flags are now being waved toward the presidential jet. The reception line is formed, and there is Mrs. Kennedy, the First Lady, stepping from the plane, wearing a bright pink suit with a dark fur color and a matching pink hat, and the President, wearing a dark suit, steps off directly behind. The weather couldn't be better. We have a brilliant sun at this moment. The wind has diminished considerably, and it has turned into a comfortable situation for the hundreds of people who came here to Dallas Love Field to witness the arrival of the president and his first lady. The president's car is being delayed momentarily. We can't see from here exactly what is holding it up, but this is the moment where the Secret Service has its point of tension. As we have talked with many of these Secret Service men in the past few days who've arranged for the president's security, they say when the president stops moving, that's when we're concerned, because that is when the possibility of trouble comes to the forefront. And here comes the president now. In fact, he's not in his limousine. He's departed the limousine, and he is walking. He is reaching across the fence, shaking hands. An amazing piece of audio there, Dr. Corsi. There, a CBS reporter talking about the arrival of the president's plane, Air Force One, at Love Field, and highlighting some of the details concerning security. How ironic that that would even be notated at the president's arrival, considering what tragedy would befall the president literally minutes later. Well, I agree. And uh, with Jack Kennedy, uh, this type of issue of security was always foremost with the Secret Service because Kennedy would 
as he did when he arrived in Love Field that day in November 22, 1963, he broke protocol. He would go over to the public, he would shake hands, he would mix with the people, he would want to be seen, he was... Um, Kennedy loved to mix with the with the public, and he didn't want to be shielded from the public. And it was a constant security issue, as you just heard the CBS reporter kind of prefigure the tragic day with the awareness of how risky this kind of behavior was. Now, his limousine, of course, was outfitted with bulletproof panels that uh, stretch a Lincoln town car. And, and yet, ironically, the president did not make use of the so-called bubble top, though I understand that the bubble top was really only for inclement weather. It wasn't bulletproof, was it? Well, it was not bulletproof, although it may have deflected a bullet or discouraged an assassin from shooting had it been on, because we have to calculate what the impact of the bulletproof... It was not bulletproof, but the bubble top would have had on a, on a, on a bullet fired. Uh, the It was ironic, because that day, November 22, 1963... When Jack Kennedy left Fort Worth to fly to Love Field, a, a flight of only about 10 minutes, it had been raining in Dallas, and the assumption was that the bubble top was going to go on the limousine, but in that 10-minute flight, the rain stopped, the sun came out, uh, Kennedy's aides always called it Kennedy weather, and uh, the bubble top came off because Kennedy had a standing order that if the weather was good, no bubble top. He did not want to have anything like this plexiglass shield um, separating him from the public. Now, the president's motorcade making its way from the Dallas Love Field Airport, uh, the short drive to the trademark where he would then attend uh, a noon luncheon and give an address, uh, began that short drive. As it did so, it made a sharp turn and made its way past the Texas School Book Depository when shots rang out. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin from ABC Radio. Here is a special bulletin from Dallas, Texas. Three shots were fired at... President Kennedy's motorcade today in downtown Dallas, Texas. This is ABC Radio. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. More details just arrived. President Kennedy shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She called, oh no, the motorcade sped on. United Press says that the wounds for President Kennedy perhaps could be fatal. Repeating a bulletin from CBS News, President Kennedy has been shot by a would-be assassin in Dallas, Texas. Stay tuned to CBS News for further details. This is an NBC News bulletin. We take you now to Robert McNeil, NBC News in Dallas, Texas. Several shots were fired today as President Kennedy's motorcade passed through downtown Dallas. Dallas. A police officer at the scene said he believed the president had been wounded and has been taken to hospital. People screamed and lay down in the grass as the shots were heard as the motorcade went by. Police immediately fanned out over a wide area. A small boy and a man said they had seen a man with a gun in the window of a building overlooking the route. Who really killed Kennedy? Fifty years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. Our special guest, New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Jerome Corsi. Our program will continue in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
suddenly there was a sharp, loud report, a shot. It seemed to me to come from the right, above my shoulder, from a building. Then one moment, and then two more shots in rapid succession. There'd been such a gala air that I thought it must be firecrackers or some sort of celebration. Who really killed Kennedy? 50 years later, a special report. Our guest today, New York Times bestselling author and the author of this new book, Who Really Killed Kennedy? Dr. Jerome Corsi. Dr. Corsi, we heard there a recording of Lady Bird Johnson, the wife of then-Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson, recounting her memories of the events that happened that fateful day in Dallas. She makes references to the number of shots that rang out, and this, of course, would become extremely pivotal in both the Warren Commission report and later on in the subsequent 1974 uh, House Select Committee assassinations um, on the whole issue of who really shot Kennedy. Tell us a bit about that. Well, the the uh, shots that were fired, first shot seemed like a firecracker, commonly reported, and there was disagreement as to how many shots were fired. The Warren Commission settled on three. Uh, there's other reports of more shooting in the plaza. At any rate, uh, governor Connolly and his wife, always Nellie Connolly, always insisted that the governor was hit by a separate bullet, not the first shot that hit Kennedy in the back or in the throat. Uh, Kennedy had two wounds, one in the back, one in the throat. Then Connolly said he was hit by the second shot, and a third shot, of course, uh, was the head shot that, uh, that killed Jack Kennedy. But again, there's some dispute about that. There could have been a double shot at the headshot, one from the back and one from the front. The sequence of shots and the number of shots uh, remain in controversy, even though the Warren Commission said there were only three shots, uh, one missed and hit a bystander. And the first shot, the Warren Commission, this magic bullet, said hit both <clears throat> Kennedy and Connolly. And the um, third shot hit Kennedy in the head. That's how the Warren Commission would, would force the evidence to explain that Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone gun assassin, uh, with a bold action, uh, manual, Mannlicher Carcano rifle, one that was made in World War II, was able to, uh, by himself, do all the shooting needed, three shots, which was all that that rifle would accommodate, but even by top, top, top marksmen in the 5.7 seconds or so that the shooting occurred. We're going to come back to more of the shooting, the allegations of the so-called sniper's nest in the sixth floor of the school book depository, and the so-called magic bullet theory in a moment. But first, let's continue the story. From Dealey Plaza then, the president's motorcade then rushes the president to Parkland Hospital. I am at the hospital now. The president was taken in uh, a few minutes ago, lifted from the car, placed on a stretcher. He was motionless. The first lady leaned over him, crying. Lyndon Johnson also appears to have been struck by one of the uh, bullets, so he was able to walk into the hospital. Governor Connolly of Texas was also wounded. It's uncertain at this moment how seriously. There is no word yet from uh, the surgical room of the hospital as to Mr. Kennedy's condition. 
Dr. Corsi, photographs, television coverage of the event that day shows a scene of just utter mass pandemonium and chaos. Here they were, in a sense, trying to provide triage to the president, who by then clearly was already dead. And yet, in the midst of trying to provide the triage, there wasn't much attention given to the fact that what they were really dealing with was a crime scene. Well, that's correct. Uh, the First of all, the shooting was a complete shock. Uh, even uh, Nellie Connolly had said to Jack Kennedy just before the shooting started that, you know, you, you can't say Mr. President Dallas doesn't love you. The outcome, people pouring out in the streets, the reaction of the crowd in Dallas to the motorcade was exceptionally warm and pleasant until the shooting started. Uh, when the shooting started, it was chaos. Uh, the uh, shock of the shooting, the rush to Parkland, when they got to Parkland, uh, the Secret Service even began washing the car, which, you know, by today's standards, anyone who's watched the CSI shows, you know you're destroying a crime scene. Uh, that was done. Uh, Kennedy was brought, rushed into the emergency room of Parkland Hospital, and again, more evidence was destroyed as his clothes were removed to try to save his life, even though the doctors recognized upon seeing Kennedy that the attempt was futile. Uh, much of his uh, skull had been blown apart and brain part, large part of his brain was missing. Uh, the doctors recognized that in the first couple seconds of looking at him. Meanwhile, while the chaos was unfolding at Parkland Hospital, back at the scene of the assassination, Dealey Plaza, this was taking place. What's amazing about that, Dr. Corsi, is that the amount of mass police that just descended like a swarm on the Texas School Book Depository as if somehow singularly that had suddenly been selected as the lone location to search for the gunman. And what strikes me as odd is that in modern-day investigations, oftentimes it takes months to come to these conclusions, and yet somehow Dallas police were able to arrive at that conclusion within minutes. And the other part that's uh, very difficult to understand is that the crowd surged up the grassy knoll where most of the people felt the shots had come from. The crowd did not rush into the Texas School Book Depository. And also, even though Dallas police, uh, by and large, rushed into the Texas School Book Depository, the, it still took about 15 minutes to close the area off. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald and many others were able to walk in or out of that building, the Texas School Book Depository, without restraint. Uh, so you had no control of the crime scene at all. Traffic was allowed almost immediately to start pouring through Dealey Plaza as if everything was normal right after the motorcade rushed to the hospital. So the crime scene was chaos, and evidence was inevitably destroyed in the chaos with no police control at all over Dealey Plaza after the shooting occurred. You have what is arguably one of the most critical historical assassinations on record, perhaps second only to the assassination of President Lincoln back in the 1860s, and yet immediate contamination of the crime scene. And while this mass pandemonium and chaos is taking place at Dealey Plaza, back over at Parkland Hospital, this announcement. Word just came to us a minute ago. 
The word we have is that President Kennedy is dead. This we do not know for a fact. The word we have is that he is dead, that he was shot by an assassin at the intersection of Elm and Houston Streets uh, just as he was going into the underpass. The word we have is from a doctor on the staff of Parkland Hospital who says that it is true. He was in tears when he told me just a moment ago. As that scene is unfolding, Dr. Corsi, over at Parkland Hospital, the situation concerning the location of the gunman is beginning to grow and develop, and, and eventually police interest would move from, not singularly in Dealey Plaza and the school book depository, but in another section of Dallas, many blocks away, where this report came through. Hello, police operator. Hello, we've had a shooting out here. Where is it at? It says the news and place radio. What location? Between Marcellus and Buckley. It's a police officer. Somebody shot him. What, what's it? 44 10th Street. It's in a police car. Number 10. 78. A shooting in front of 404 10th Street in Dallas, and Dallas police officer Tippett had been shot dead. What happened? Well, again, that's been a large subject of controversy. Uh, the immediate blame was put on. Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, who the police interpreted as escaping uh, from the uh, Texas School Book Depository and encountering a policeman who tried to arrest him, and, and Lee Harvey Oswald shot the policeman. Of course, that's the cover story, I believe. Um, I'm not sure that Oswald was even there uh, at the Tippett murder scene, and a wallet was dropped there with all of Oswald's identification in it. It looked to me always like a setup, but at any rate... The next event here was the shooting of the officer Tippett, and uh, followed quickly by finding Lee Harvey Oswald in a movie theater. So J.G. Tippett is shot. Yes. Allegedly, according to the Warren Commission report, Oswald then moves from that scene to a movie theater, and, and somehow, as he's escaping the scene, reaches into his back pocket and takes his wallet out and drops it? So the, that's, that's a remarkable thing. I mean... It, the dropping of the wallet, uh, with all the identification, including all the alternative A. Heidel location, uh, identification, in the wallet dropped at the Tippett murder scene, uh, was always to me an indication of a setup. Killers just don't drop their wallets at the scene of the crime. While this chaos is now unfolding in three separate locations across Dallas, the announcement is made official. Ladies and gentlemen... The President of the United States is dead. John F. Kennedy has died of the wounds received in assassination in Dallas less than an hour ago. We repeat, it has just been announced that President Kennedy is dead. Who really killed Kennedy? A special report. Our conversation with New York Times bestselling author Dr. Jerome Corsi continues in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this Lifeline special report, Who Really Killed Kennedy? That is the title of a new book, newly released by Dr. Jerome Corsi, our special guest today. Dr. Corsi, as the panic is taking place across now many locations within Dallas, from the school book depository to Daly Plaza to what's happening back at Parkland Hospital to the scene of the assassination or killing of Officer J.D. Tippett, now suddenly the action moves to yet another location. It's 
information that Hey Sussberg just went in the Texas theater on West Jersey. Temple. Supposed to be hiding in the balcony. Now, Dr. Corsi, given as large as Dallas is and the amount of panic and fright that was taking place all across the city on that fateful Friday afternoon, how is it that they were so suddenly able to track Oswald down from the alleged scene of Doctor um, of Officer Tippett's assassination to the movie theater? Well, it's always been very suspicious. It's almost as if the identification of the killer was planted or dropped in advance. I mean, this is happening all in a remarkably short period of time. Remember, the shooting, Dallas time, is at 1230, um, right after noon, half past noon. By 1240, Kennedy is at Parkland Hospital. By 1250, the doctors have given up trying to save his life. They know he's dead. By 1 o'clock, the priest has arrived and given the last rites to Jack Kennedy, and the announcement is made that to the public that Jack Kennedy is dead. And then this is this was, you know, within that next hour, certainly by 2 o'clock, uh, Tippett is killed. Uh, Oswald is apprehended in the uh, Texas theater, the movie theater. This is all ha- happening in Oak Cliff, which is a, a close-in suburb of Dallas. And by 2 o'clock, or right around 2 o'clock, uh, Oswald is in police headquarters, um, not yet charged with killing either Tippett or um, Kennedy, but arrested on suspicion of having killed Tippett. So in under two hours, hours. they suddenly have what eventually is alleged by the Warren Commission report as their man in police custody at police headquarters in Dallas and ready to be interrogated. That's correct. Remarkable. And yet, as we try to fit the pieces of this puzzle together across Dallas, across the nation, more and more Americans are becoming aware of the news. In fact, remarkably so, ask anyone over the age of 50, 55, or 60, and they'll remember precisely where they were at the moment the announcement was made. Like folks attending the Boston Symphony. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a press report over the wires. We hope that it is unconfirmed, but we have to doubt it, that the President of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. We will play the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. Now, Dr. Corsi, help us better understand the mentality of the nation at the time that this event is unfolding. We made reference earlier on to the fact that we had come through the Cuban Missile Crisis. There are uh, tense relationships between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, and now suddenly across the country, this news is making its way from coast to coast and border to border that Kennedy has been shot. Well, and you, you've got to realize that the... Uh, image of Kennedy he was you know, the youngest president, uh, vital. Uh, he was seen as uh, you know new frontier. This was a uh, new generation. The torch had been passed. You know, a new generation born in the you know, the twentieth century, whereas Eisenhower had been born in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, and suddenly, for Kennedy to be dead, assassinated on a Friday afternoon in the East Coast, three o'clock or three thirty. Uh, this is. Just incomprehensible. I mean, the, you heard the shock 
in the Boston Symphony Hall, that was a shock across the nation. People just could not comprehend that it was possible that uh, Jack Kennedy was dead and killed by an assassin. This was something that happened, you know, in the 1800s maybe, or to President Lincoln. And But to happen to a modern president this vital, uh, just taken on a Friday afternoon from life, uh, removed from office, was just more than most people could even comprehend. It was a total shock, and I think everyone in the nation, like the 9-11 attack on the Twin Towers, everyone in America remembered where they were when they first heard the news that Jack Kennedy had been assassinated. Was there also perhaps a, an atmosphere in which perhaps arriving at quick, speedy justice would be advantageous? I mean, for example, I know that in the early moments there was immediately concern that uh, the Soviet Union had behind had been behind the assassination, and of course that it could open up a, an absolute uh, Pandora's box of, you know, even potential nuclear warfare between the United States and the Soviet Union. So were there, were there underlying causes within the nation and the atmosphere in the country at the time that would have made it advantageous to bring about what today we would call a rush to judgment? Well, I mean, certainly. I mean, it's the same as it occurred in 9-11. You remember when the attacks first occurred and the uh, airplanes hit the, the Twin Towers, in those first moments, no one knew if we were at war or what happened. I mean, the first airplane hit, it looked like an accident. The second plane hit, you knew it was terrorism. But yet, you didn't know who the terrorists were or how broad the attack was going to be. Then you heard the Pentagon was attacked. I mean, it was the same in, when Jack Kennedy was killed. The, much of the cabinet was in air, uh, in, the, in route over the Pacific. They had to be recalled. The plane had to be called back. They were intent going to attend an international meeting. Uh, the, there was kind of a lockdown in Washington trying to figure out, you know, was anyone else at risk? You'll remember in the Lincoln assassination, there was also an attack on Secretary of State Seward the same night. Uh, Vice President Johnson at that time, also Vice President Johnson in Lincoln's case, was also, there, there was planned to be an attempt on his life that did not go forward, but it was planned. So when Kennedy was killed, in the first hours of recognizing it, no one knew whether this was an international attack, whether we were at war, whether other officials of the government were at risk. And, of course, there's always a, an urge to say, who did it, and find the culprit as quickly as you can. The rush to judgment instinct is probably immediate in these kinds of instances, and it certainly was in 1963. And meanwhile, back at Dallas Police Headquarters... Down in Dallas, Texas, authorities are now questioning a 24-year-old man to see if he has any connection with the slaying of President Kennedy. He is Lee Oswald. He is a definite suspect in the fatal shooting of a Dallas policeman and a definite suspect in the assassination of President Kennedy. Oswald was taken when armed with a pistol... He was arrested in a theater. Who is this Lee Oswald? His home, Fort Worth, Texas. He had been in the Marines. When he got out of the Marines, he said he wanted to go to Russia. He said he wanted to stay there. But apparently became disillusioned with life under communist rule. After working in a Soviet factory in Minsk, marrying a Russian woman, giving her a child. In 1962, in the fall of 1962, he applied for a passport to return to the United States and bring his family back with him. The passport was issued. Soviet authorities granted him exit permits. 
Given the atmosphere as you described, Dr. Corsi, in America at that time, it, it seemed to be quite logical that possible assassin might have been engaged in work with the Soviet Union, perhaps a, a KGB operative, and it would seem very logical that then this would be a guy that certainly had the potentiality for assassinating the president. Help us a little bit deeper. Answer the question, who was Lee Harvey Oswald? Well, again, this has been one of the continuing mysteries, and that the evidence that was that came out also very quickly that Lee Harvey Oswald had a was a, uh, actually an agent with the FBI was being paid two hundred dollars a month by the FBI as an informant had a CIA file may have been a counter agent that was loyal to the United States and defected to the Soviet Union to penetrate the KGB all of this story when the Warren Commission had it presented to it by the, the chief counsel. Uh, Alan Dulles, the committee, just buried the information. And this other story, which made Oswald the perfect patsy, that he was a communist sympathizer, a lone nut, you know, a weak guy who, how could this insignificant nothing with a cheap World War II rifle kill the most important and powerful man in America, Jack Kennedy? This was a great story that the media latched onto, uh, even though it may have all been a lie, all a cover story that really framed Oswald as the ideal patsy, the ideal fall guy, the ideal guy to be blamed for a crime that may have, in fact, been a coup d'etat. And ultimately, the only guy ever to be charged. I'm sorry, Bill, to interrupt. We just have word now from uh, ABC affiliate WFAA in Dallas, Texas, that Lee Oswald has been charged with the murder of President John F. Kennedy. Who really killed Kennedy? 50 years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. With us, New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Jerome Corsi. Our special report continues after this. Our Church of the Week, Ephesian Church of God in Christ in Berkeley, led by Senior Pastor Bishop Jonathan Logan. Ephesian Church of God in Christ is a thriving, multicultural, multi-generational church seeking to impact the world through faith and excellence. The mission is to help people know Jesus, to grow and encourage committed and empowered disciples, to better the community, and to change the world. Bishop Jonathan Logan and Ephesian Church of God in Christ in Berkeley, our Church of the Week. This is Sebastian Gorka, and I want to invite you to join me for a powerful travel opportunity that will likely become the highlight of your year. I'm headed to Israel in November 2022 for a 10-day Stand with Israel tour of the key sites and best places meant to give you an unprecedented view of a world you've likely only read or heard about. Together, we'll uncover key geopolitical insights as we unpack Israel's significance on the world stage. Your return home empowered by the experience. If you've ever dreamt of visiting Israel, this is your opportunity. Come with me in 2022. For more information, call 855-565-5519 or book online at standwithisraeltour.com 855-565-5519 or standwithisraeltour.com Buying a home is a great leap of faith. Before you take that leap, be sure to catch Faith in Home Buying, the program that equips people of faith for the home buying process. I'm your host, Tamika Ellsworth, and when we give God our mustard seed, He will move mountains, making the impossible possible. So give practical advice, reliable insight, and useful knowledge on Faith in Home Buying. Saturday mornings at 9.30, right here on AM 1100 KFAX. 
Progressive is America's number one motorcycle insurer, so we understand motorcycles. No, really, we have a bike translator. Uh, okay, this is awkward, but this bike says he'd appreciate it if you removed his skull pattern saddlebags. He feels self-conscious about them around all the other bikes, and he says you're not fooling anyone. You mostly ride with your golfing buddies. <laughs> Listen, I'm just the messenger here. Oh, no, I don't want to say that. I think you made yourself clear. Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Are you wondering if this year you'll still be asking why it seems so easy for other people to find love, but so hard for me? If you're feeling the pain of being alone and are tired of everyone around you finding their soulmates and leaving you behind, then get ready to remove the barriers to finding the marriage of your dreams and start believing it's possible for you. Hi, I'm Jackie Dorman. Join me in my Married in 12 Months Challenge, where I'll teach you why now is your time to find love, what are the lies that are holding you back, why God wants you to be married, the biblical law of attraction, and the tools you need to become a bride. Listen, if you deeply desire to be married, but you're still single, you should be doing something about it. Sign up for my free Married in 12 Months 5-Day Challenge at lovestories.com. The only thing you have to lose is the pain of being alone on your journey. So join me at lovestories.com. That's lovestories.com. To encourage and grow believers in Christ through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, that is the goal of With All Wisdom and the Teaching and Preaching Ministry of Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino. Taking their name from Paul's Word, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. With All Wisdom, Monday through Friday at 4.30 in the afternoon here on AM 1100 KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. These people have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. Welcome back to our special report, Who Really Killed Kennedy? The title of a new book released by our guest today, Dr. Jerome Corsi. The book, by the way, is available through World Net Daily Publications and also through Amazon. There is Lee Harvey Oswald speaking briefly before the press gathered at the police headquarters in Dallas saying that he didn't really know that he'd been charged and that, in fact, he killed no one. Talk to us a bit about the staging of Lee Harvey Oswald as the quote-unquote lone gunman, which many today believe was the lone patsy. Well, and in fact, this was, from the very beginning, the story that was coming out, you see how quickly this background resume on Oswald was circulated. It's almost as if the government had it ready to go to press and circulate instantly that this is a Lee Harvey Oswald defector, lone nut, you know, dissatisfied marriage, uh, came back from Russia, unhappy in Russia, communist, all these elements. When you saw Lee Harvey Oswald in the police station, saw this, you know, very frightened 24-year-old guy, a very young man, and every time he got a chance, he said he was a patsy. He said he didn't shoot anyone. Uh, it was the press who told Lee Harvey Oswald that he had been actually charged with the murder of the president. Lee Harvey Oswald looked disgusted. He said, I'm waiting for someone to come forward. I uh, had no legal representation at that time. Uh, but Lee Harvey Oswald protested his innocence right until the time he was shot, which was on that Sunday morning even though it all seems to be, as you indicate, pretty ready-made explanation. Give a listen. And here's information just in from Dallas, Texas. Police Chief Jesse Curry says that Lee Harvey Oswald has readily admitted he is a communist. Chief Curry says that Oswald admitted 
to the officers questioning him that he was a member of the Communist Party, and the Dallas police chief said apparently he was proud of being a communist. He didn't try to hide it, and said Chief Curry he did not know whether Oswald was a card-carrying member of the party. Now, we, of course, are not long after the Red Scare and the committee hearings in Washington, D.C., uh, under the junior senator um, of Iowa concerning the whole issue of who was a communist and who wasn't. It seems to be, uh, Dr. Corsi, a ready-made story that, at the end of the day, is very convenient in terms of showing the proudness of a number of law enforcement agencies. Uh, Chief Curry's department, certainly there in Dallas, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, the Secret Service, uh, so many both local and national law enforcement agencies that at the end of the day would have benefited quite greatly if this thing were all sort of sewn up nice and tightly and delivered in a clean, neat package. Here's the man responsible. Take him to trial. Well, certainly that's how it was presented. That's how it unfolded. Uh, what you you know are not presented with is that if, if um, Oswald was a double agent, he's not going to blow his cover by telling the police that he isn't a communist. He's going to play the role for a while longer at least until somebody comes forward like he asked and he gets some government clearance and some cover here. And very conveniently, uh, the Dallas police and the FBI are burying evidence. The initial rifle that was found in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository was a Mauser, and that information even went to the press, not a Manlicker Carcano rifle. Uh, and that Mauser was just lost. It was just dropped once they found the a. Heidel identification in the wallet that was dropped at the Tippett uh, murder scene, and that that linked to Oswald, and that there was a mail order Manlicker Carcano bought. They found a Manlicker Carcano on the sixth floor. They said, "We've got the weapon. Forget about that Mauser. We you know just drop it. We don't need to talk about that anymore." And that was going on with evidence all over the place. Uh, the cartridges that were found, two cartridges were found dropped at the sixth floor window. But when they were and they were picked up by uh, Captain Fritz of the Dallas Police, he put them in his pocket. He took them to his office, put them in his drawer of his desk. And when they decided they were going to photograph them, they by this point the Dallas Police and the FBI decided there were three shots. So they just produced a third cartridge and showed it as three cartridges. That was the photograph of the exhibit for the Warren Commission, even though only two were ever found at that window. So it seems as if we, we've made a conclusion, we've drawn a conclusion, and now we're about finding evidence to support that conclusion. And if there's any contrarian evidence that comes forward, we bury it or ignore it. Yes, in fact, the memo written almost instantly by the Assistant Attorney General Nicholas D.B. Katzenbach to Bill Moyers, who is press secretary for Lyndon Johnson, now President Johnson, said, we've got to have a commission and we have to tell the American people that Oswald was a lone gun assassin. Otherwise, we might have a war with Russia. And Lyndon Johnson was on the phone saying, we've got to make sure this guy is known to everybody as guilty. Otherwise, there could be you know, 30 million people killed in nuclear war with Russia. I can tell you that this case is cinched, that this man killed the president. And there, there's no question in, in my mind about it. Uh, what is the basis for that? No, sir, I don't want to go into the basis. Thank you. I don't want to get into the evidence. I just want to tell you that we are convinced beyond any doubt that he did the killing. Now, ironically, Dr. Corsi, there is um, Chief of Police Curry uh, asserting within 48 hours after the assassination 
We've got this thing wrapped up. Hadn't there at that point been any interviews conducted by Dallas police or the FBI or the Secret Service concerning eyewitnesses' accounts, the questions about whether or not there was an additional gunman uh, hiding behind that fence there uh, in, in Dealey Plaza? I mean, how can we, again, come to such a definitive conclusion in such a short period of time when there's so much other conflicting evidence? Well, in fact, the Dallas police did take depositions on November 22nd from a whole series of people many of whom said the shots came from the grassy knoll, many of whom, uh, you know, it was hard to find a reliable witness that had identified uh, Lee Oswald. In fact, the one witness they thought they had could not identify him or would not identify Oswald in a lineup. Uh, what you're here with, you know, Captain Fritz coming out and declaring Oswald guilty by today's standards would have been a perfect setup for a good criminal lawyer to have... You know, demanded a new venue for the trial, maybe have declared that the evidence was already prejudicial to his client, and the judgment was being made in the public before any trial had occurred. Remember, Oswald never had a lawyer. There was never anybody representing Oswald at this point, and yet he was being declared guilty before the nation by the Dallas police with the sound encouragement of the FBI, the Secret Service, and all the other uh, entities, including Lyndon Johnson. To even the casual observer, looking at the details as you've outlined them so far of the events of that day and the two days following in Dallas, it would seem as if there were so many questions that would suggest that there was more people involved in all of this. I don't say at this point that it rises to the level of a conspiracy, but at least there seems to be more than one individual that might have played a role in all of this, and certainly a little bit of collusion going on amongst law enforcement officials to wrap this thing up as quickly as possible. Now, if that were the case, it would be quite convenient then if the lone gunman, the one person being charged with the assassination of Kennedy, the one person who could ultimately tell us the truth were suddenly taken out of the picture. Now the prisoner uh, wearing a black sweater, he has changed from his t-shirt, is being uh, moved out toward an armored car, being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is the prisoner. Do you have anything to say in your defense? There is a shot. Oswald has been shot. An ambulance uh, has arrived. They are rushing a mobile stretcher in. Oswald was carried back into the uh, hallway. Here is young Oswald now. He is being hustled in. He is lying flat. To me, he appears dead. There is a gunshot wound in his lower abdomen. He is white. Pull the top down there, yelling. Here's the driver. Let the driver by. Oswald, white, lying in the ambulance. His head is back. He is out, unconscious. Dangling. His hand is dangling over the edge of the stretcher. And now the ambulance is moving out. Dr. Corsi, what's absolutely remarkable about that piece of audio is I, I can't imagine another circumstance where the transfer of a prisoner, in this case from a local city jail being moved to county jail, uh, that an announcement would be made to the press. There were television cameras there in the garage of the Dallas Police Department that captured this whole scene live on national television. Who would ever do something like that? Well, the whole thing was like a circus. Even in the Dallas Police Department, you had reporters crowding the halls, jamming microphones, 
uh, at Oswald every time he came out. The police were bringing Oswald out to show that he had not been beaten up or brutalized, and now no police brutality. And, you know, watching this on live TV, the Sunday shooting of Oswald, I was 17 years old. My immediate reaction was this was a mob silencing. And yet, as we go forward, Jack Ruby is going to be presented as sympathetic. He didn't want Mrs. Kennedy to have to go through a trial. Uh, the truth is, Jack Ruby was a organized crime figure that...